everyone. My name is Jason. I am husband to Jothi, father to Brielle, Liam, and River, and I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. It's such a pleasure to be here today with all of you. We're getting to meet for the first time. I've had an opportunity to meet Pastor Mike and uh, Pastor Bernie, who is, I believe, at, at Covenant now. So it's been great to be able to hear uh, about you, and I'm so encouraged by your prayers and support for us. So on behalf of New Hope Church, we're so grateful for the ways that you've stood with us. I wish they could see you because there is a, a tendency in church planning to feel like we're alone and not see the names and the faces of people who are holding us up in prayer. So just want to say thank you again for your support and your prayers for us. Is that, do I, am I the only one that hears that? Is anyone else? No? Is that okay? All right. Uh, just to share a little bit about um, our story, my wife and I started to discern a call to plant a church in 2011. I was pastoring, I was one of, uh, one of two pastors of a church in Houston at that time, and we were thinking about church planting, and she's a native New Yorker, she's born and raised in Queens, and we are wondering whether or not we should move to New York to plant a church. And in 2013, we finally decided to make that move, and there were a lot of ways that the Lord had confirmed that for us in through godly counsel and circumstances and his providence. But whenever we got here in 2013, it's like it was radio silence. And I became a middle school teacher in the Bronx. My wife is a licensed mental health therapist. Uh, she got a job as a therapist with the Redeemer Counseling Services. And I was interning at a church in Manhattan at the time. And while working there for the school, interning in the church, and then eventually joining the staff, for about three years, we were trying to figure out why on earth, Lord, are you calling us to New York? We were living in Harlem. We've lived in Harlem as long as we've been there. And in 2016, the lead pastor of the church where I was interning, and it became one of the elders there, he asked me to become the next lead pastor. And we prayed about that. And, you know, switching from raising support, moving to New York to plant a church, to then becoming the pastor of an existing church, the church where we were, we were working, well... Like, that was a shift in itself. Like, there was a little bit of vertigo there. Okay, like, what is this, Lord? Are you opening this door here for us to, to shepherd this church and really uh, develop stronger relationships with the people that you had called us to there? And so after praying about it, in 2017, I officially became the pastor of that church. Uh, we were, were an Acts 29 church, and so at that time, and it might still be the case now, it goes with the pastor, so whenever there's a new pastor of an Acts 29 church, that pastor has to be assessed. But along with assessing me, they looked at our church, which was about 10 years old at the time, and they said, Jason, we don't think the church is going to make it. Um, organizationally, culturally, we just think that this is, the church is slowly dying in its missional passion and, and vigor, and we think that you should close the church down and maybe gather a team to go plant a church in wherever God might call you, maybe in Harlem. And I had not even been the pastor for a year. Um, if there was anything that I've, well, one, moving to New York, it was like, Lord, don't let me fail, right? Like, don't let this, like, end in failure. And then becoming the lead pastor of the church, it was like, don't let the church die on my watch, God. Um, and I had to stare at all my fears and insecurities in the face. And the elders, we, we, we weighed what, the, uh, the, what Acts 29 recommended, and we, we saw some wisdom to that. And so in December of 2018, we closed the church down, the most painful ministry decision I've ever made in my life. And starting in 2019, we started to gather a team. About 14 people from that church came with us to plant a church in Harlem. We, were, we gathered a team in 2019. We did everything that church planners typically do in order to, 
to gather a community and be on mission and launch a public service. And we, we launched our, our, our first public service March 1st, 2020, and then three weeks later, COVID hit, ravaged the city. And we thought, okay, this is going to be, what, seven weeks? Like, maybe we'll get together again. We didn't have, pub- we didn't have weekly services again for another 16 months. We did stuff online. Um, and I fell into depression because we, we're a story form people. Like we, we have to make sense of our stories. We always, we have a tendency to look at our story and try to find meaning in, even if you're not religious, we tend to f- try to find meaning in what's happening in our lives. We believe it has to go somewhere. And I couldn't find the meaning. Like, Lord, why did we move from Houston to plant a church, to lead a church, to close it down, and, and like gather this team to launch this community and like, you can have told us to wait. <laughs> like, you know, why did you hold off for about 16 months? Um, I fell into some depression, and I had an opportunity a couple months later to, around June of 2020, July of 2020, get away uh, just to be with the Lord uh, and, and, and find my first love again. And that was really invigorating for me going back. And the Lord has just sustained us. In July of 2021, we started gathering in a cafe on the second floor of a cafe. It's like 13 by 60. It was like talking to like, you had like only rows of like three on each side. Like you're in an airplane. That's what it felt like. Um, and we were meeting in this cafe. And then we started meeting in a school in 2022. Um, and listen, the reason I'm telling you this, there's a way to tell these stories where we can make ourselves a heroes. Like, look at everything. Look how resilient we are. That's not the point. Not only would that be foolish, it'd be dishonest. And so please don't hear this as humility. Hear this as honesty. You know, we carry treasure in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. So that when these jars that appear to be on the brink of breaking are not crushed, are not perplexed, are not driven to despair, but continue to persevere. Everyone else watching will know that the power belongs to God and not to us. And I say this story because I want you to know that God can do some, work something beautiful through our brokenness. Like our community today is, there's a culture in our community that, that suffering has brought about. We, we were forced to love one another and serve each other. We endured suffering together. And that God accomplished that in, in a way that a sermon series on being a community can never accomplish. Like we had to grow up into that vision and mission and culture. We always wanted to be about the neighborhood, but experiencing that, those difficulties together, and, and it made us outward facing. We by necessity had to be outward facing, and it made us grow up into the vision and culture that we've always wanted to have. So God did something beautiful in us as a a community, and he did something beautiful in me and my wife as a result of it as well. In his book, The Soul of Desire, psychologist Kurt Thompson talks about the Japanese art form called kintsugi. And the story goes that a Japanese shogun shattered his favorite tea bowl, and he sent the shattered bowl to China in order to get it repaired, but they did a terrible job and sent it back in poor condition. And he was so upset by this that he decided to throw it away But before he could do that, a Japanese craftsman heard and received the bowl, and instead of focusing on how to hide the fracture lines, he decided to highlight it, to highlight the brokenness. He overlaid the cracks with gold, and the end result was that the bowl became more beautiful than before it had been broken. Kintsugi is an art form that brings beauty from broken things. And you've probably heard that phrase before, right? Bringing beauty out of broken things. And we probably can believe that when it comes to objects and things, but can that happen to people? 
Can God do that with us? Can he do that with our stories? And the answer in scripture is a resounding yes, he absolutely can. And today, we'll see that he actually made us for redemption. God created you with redemption in mind. Redemption from your brokenness, the scars that you carry, the wounds that that were inflicted upon you, sins you've committed, the guilt and shame that you still bear today. He has created you to redeem you from those things. But in order to truly appreciate this, we've got to know when he loved us and chose to redeem us and how he loves us and redeems us. So before we go to God's word right now, I'd love for us to just gather our hearts and pray. Can we do that? Dear Father, we know that though we cannot see you, Lord, you are here with us, Lord. Lord Jesus, you are among us now, and we trust you to do the ministry that needs to be done in this community. Lord, you alone know what words need to be said, what pain needs to be healed, what reassurance people need today. And so we're looking to you, living God, together, that you would speak through your word, and you would minister to our need. I'm just going to ask you to make that your own and quietly pray in your heart. Ask the Lord to speak to you. Amen. The first thing, the when of redemption. So the letter that we're about to read together, the first part of it at least, was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And he wrote this to the churches in Ephesus. He wants the church to understand all that God has accomplished for them in Jesus Christ, not only in rescuing them, but also in reconciling all things, particularly people, together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he writes this while in prison just makes it all the more remarkable. It shows how enamored Paul is in the midst of his suffering, shows how enamored he is with what God has done. And the first wonder that he states, the first thing that's remarkable here, is when God loved us and chose to redeem us. This is how he starts this letter. It's gonna be on the screen. Ephesians 1, three through eight. All right, I'll just start reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And I'll stop right there. I think this might be the longest sentence in the Bible. It's like, Paul, it's okay, embrace some punctuation. It's going to be all right. But what's he saying here? He worships God. Like, it's like he can't, he can't even catch his breath. He overflows with praise as he is writing this from prison. He worships God for the blessing with which, God, we have in Jesus Christ. And the first spiritual blessing that he mentions here, that he states here, the first wonder is the revelation of when God chose to love us. Do you catch that? 
when he chose to love you and redeem you, before the foundations of the earth were laid, before he created the world, he chose you. In love, he determined that he would save you, forgive you, and adopt you as his own. So let's bring this down to the ground a little bit, okay? So what does this mean? Like you walked in here with all kinds of burdens and anxieties and insecurities. You're, you woke up, and as soon as you woke up and you opened your eyes, all the burdens of the day hit you in the chest. And you walk in here, you're trying to focus on God through the songs. You're trying to muster some, up some faith and sing to God together. And you think it's all about what you do in order to experience God's love. But I just want to take a minute here to think about what this is saying and what this implies It means before you attended the service today, before you moved to New York, whenever that was, or your family moved to New York, before you called on his name and asked him to forgive you for the first time, before you were born, before your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents were born, before every movement in American history, before America was a country, before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church, before the rise and fall of Rome, before the Apostle Paul penned these words from a cold prison cell, before Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, before David slung smooth stones into the head of Goliath, before Moses heard the voice of God from a blazing fire, before Abraham gazed at the stars, at the descendants that God promised him, one of which would represent you, before Adam and Eve walked the Garden of Eden naked and unashamed, before God spoke and created light and all the laws of physics with his voice. That's when God chose to love you. That's when he determined that he would redeem you and save you. So what difference does this make? Well, it makes a lot of difference, an incredible difference. We walk around with the belief that our decisions and desires dictate our redemption and God's love for us. So God continues to love us because of what we can do. Right? So we're here together, and it's if, if, depending on how you perform or how you sing or how focused you are, therefore God will love you. Like, I'll just tell you, as a pastor, I've been in ministry for over 20 years now. might not look like it. If you see the grades, maybe you'll believe it. But, like, I've been in ministry for over 20 years now. But even to this day, my regular experience of God is that he just tolerates me. I believe he loves me. But usually in my effort to try to focus on him and spend time with him, I feel like I'm doing something wrong and he leave, I leave him disappointed in some way. And so I have to remind myself that my feelings are not facts, that God's word is true, that he does love me, that these things are true. In other words, when you know the timing of his love, when he chose to love you, and when he determined to redeem you, it means that you do not bear the responsibility of his love because his love transcends you. Before you could do good or anything good or bad. Before you chose to pray a prayer of forgiveness. Before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's when he chose to love you. That's when he made the decision and he determined that he would save you and redeem you. If you believe that you bear the responsibility of God's love, you're always terrified that you're just one decision or one desire away from God removing his love from you. That one day we'll lose it and what we do or, or who we are is no longer enough. But if these words of Paul are true, and they are, God made that decision before you ever were born, before he even created the world, before the foundations of the earth were laid. The timing of his love teaches us that his love transcends us. This is true of the most secure relationships that we enjoy today. For example, think of your best friend, a spouse, a cousin, a sibling, um, a parent. 
Chances are these relationships that are the most secure are secure because their reasons for loving you transcend you. It's not that they don't love things about you. They, of course, love things about you, but their commitment to love you is not ultimately rooted in anything you do or anything you, you decide or, uh, or, or, or what you desire. If you cease to be those things, desire those things, or chose differently, they would still love you. And that love will appear in all kinds of ways. It can mean confronting you. It can mean leaving you to your choices so that hopefully there will be some kind of change and transformation in, in, in your life. But whatever it is, the most secure relationships are relationships where the reasons for love ultimately transcend you. For those of you who are dating right now, for example, I mean, I, my, most of the people in my church are single. Like, I'm one of three dads in our church. Like, when Father's Day rolls around, nobody cares, right, in our church. We don't get anything. The fathers just huddle up in a corner and say, in a corner and say happy Father's Day to each other. But, and I have to often tell them, especially those who are, are engaged and when we do premarital counseling, that the dating relationship does not prepare you for what love in a marriage looks like. Because if you're dating someone right now, chances are, all of your reasons for being together are in each other. You found each other attractive, right? You, you enjoy the same hobbies or interests. You have shared, a shared value and vision for life. All of your jokes are hilarious and funny right now. And you just love being together. All of your reasons are in each other. But the moment you say, I do, if you're a Christian, the moment you say, I do, you're essentially saying before God and witnesses, my reasons are no longer in you, they're in Christ, in fact, you make the vows in anticipation of the day that you will no longer be those things or you may not be those things in the future. And that's why you say, for better, for worse, I love you even when we have plenty or little, for richer, for poorer. I love you whether or not you could take care of me in sickness and in health. Until death, I'll love you because of Christ, because of his love for us. You love one another and you serve each other out of reverence for Jesus, not because your spouse remains impressive, but because Jesus is impressive and he will always be worthy enough and impressive enough in order for you to love and serve your, one another. This relationship is secure because though there are things that your spouse will love about you, the ultimate reason will transcend you. It'll be rooted in Jesus. When I just entered college, the first person in my family, in my extended family, uh, so I was like, I guess, 18, 19, my cousin, my first cousin was the first person in our family to have a baby. And we would always act foolish together. We would do dumb things together. We, I don't know whether it's like uh, spending all of our time playing video games or other things that aren't very productive or doesn't lead to human flourishing. Um, but when he was in his mid-20s, he had a kid, and I was just shocked by how much his life changed. Like, I, kind, I think I might have grieved a little bit about how our relationship changed. Like, everything revolved around this baby now, right? And I was surprised at how much, though we were so alike, how much he willingly embraced the change as well. And so one day, when I was at his place, we were in the kitchen, I asked him, like, hey, man, why do you love her so much? Like, why do you love your daughter so much? And I was really wondering, like, trying to think out loud, trying to process this. And he said, I don't know. I mean, she's so innocent. Look at her. And, like, we could see her. And I'm like, well, if she wasn't innocent, would you still love her? And he said, yeah. I said, like, well, why do you love her? He was like, well, she's helpless. I said, if she wasn't helpless, like, if she could help herself, would you still love her? And he said, yeah. And I'm not try I wasn't trying to drive a point home. I just I was wondering why. And he said, well, what do you want me to say? I was like, I think you love her. Not because she's helpless, or she, just because she's yours. Then that's why you love her. I guess what I'm trying to say is, before you could do anything good or bad, before you were born, before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Lord saw you, and he said, mine. You're his. There's nothing you could do to change that. I want you to hear me. You don't bear the responsibility of sustaining God's love for you. 
because he chose to do that before you could ever pray a prayer of forgiveness, before you decided to even be here today. So how does that impact you? I want you to think about your life. To know his love transcends you, to know that you don't bear the responsibility of sustaining that love. How does the timing of his love affect the way that you think about your brokenness? What burden does it lift? What pressure does it ease when you think about when he chose to redeem you? You and I were made for redemption, and this will only be remarkable when we first understand when, and the second thing, how. So let's go ahead and read 3 through 14. We're going to read this section together again. I just want you to have an eye for how he has loved us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we looked at when he loved us, but how has he loved us? If we made a list, if you paid attention and you made a list of all the things that he described in the opening paragraphs of this letter, here's what we know. How has he loved you and how, what has he done? He's blessed you. He has chosen you. He's adopted you. He's, lab, for, he's forgiven you. He's lavished his grace on you. He's made known his will to save you, his determination to do so. He's included you with Christ. He's sealed you with his Holy Spirit so that you would be to the praise of his glory. Do you feel that today when you were singing? Did you know that those things were true about you today as you were making your prayers known to God? Those things are all true today, regardless of how you feel. Regardless of your past, they're true. In fact, knowing your past plays a critical role in you appreciating this. And sometimes we don't appreciate redemption, how he's redeemed us, because we want to avoid the past. You won't appreciate everything he's done to redeem you unless you remember the time in your life when you long to receive a blessing, maybe from a father or a mother and you never got it, or you long to be seen or for someone to look at you and choose you. You long for belonging, for forgiveness, for a savior, for the presence of your maker, for the presence of the spirit so that your life may be for something bigger than you, something that transcends you to the praise of his glorious grace. And now in Christ, according to this passage, it's yours. Let's get a little bit more specific. Again, these are broad categories. But when you think about redemption, in order to appreciate it again, you have to think about your past, and we have to, we have to, we have to expose our assumptions about how God redeems our past. Like, some people think about their redemption as reset. 
I love what, I'm going to quote James K. K. Smith in just a minute. Uh, I love what he says about the way that we think about time in our past. He says that, uh, he wrote that in the 1900s, that was the first time that we came up with the concept of the timeline. Prior to that, it was kind of a foreign concept. People tried to understand time, and the timeline was helpful in that regard. But because of us, because of the way that we think about time, we think that whenever the the past is behind us and it no longer follows us anymore. And when you smuggle that in, well, let me just go and say, so James K. Smith says that really time zigs and zags, and the past actually goes up and folds upon the present. And you don't realize how you continue to bear the things that have been done to you or the things spoken to you, or the things that you've committed or were committed against you, right? Like you don't realize how the, the past folds upon the present and you still, it lingers to this day. But when you think about redemption as reset, you won't deal with those things or realize how God is active in those things. We're a new, we're a new creation, that's absolutely true. But you might think about yourself as a person without a past or redemption as erasure, erasing all of your brokenness. But it still lingers, Right? You still, you still sense it, right? I love what Pete Scazzaro says, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, you may have Jesus in your heart, but you've got grandpa in your bones. And that means you still carry your family of origin. All the patterns of thinking and all the patterns of behavior, they come with you even as you become a Christian. They don't just get erased, right? And that's part of what God wants to redeem in this sanctifying work by the power of the Spirit to help you see new patterns of thinking and new patterns of behavior and how he's redeeming that story. In other words, if you think of your past and redemption as just a reset, you won't appreciate redemption. Others of us think about redemption not as reset, but the way you approach redemption is just regret. You feel with shame. And therefore, your enjoyment of redemption is stifled because you want to avoid your past. You look back and wonder if the most glorious days are, are prior to all the sins that you've committed or were committed against you. You often wonder if there can really be beauty from brokenness. Like if you think about your life right now and the brokenness that you carry, like you might wonder, can God really bring anything out of this? You see, something of redemption is reset from your past. Others can't enjoy redemption because of regret for their past. But in both cases, the past is something to be avoided, and it can only bring pain. But here's what James K. Smith has to say. This is from his book on how to inhabit time. I believe it'll be on the screen. I'll try to read this slowly. Grace is not a retroactive magic that makes evil good. Easter Sunday's light does not obliterate the long, dark shadows of Holy Saturday. Grace doesn't justify evil. Grace overcomes it. What changes is who is with us and what God can do with our suffering. Shame can't imagine a future for our past. Shame teaches me to look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. In grace, God looks at my past and sees the sketch of a work of art that he wants to finish painting and show the world. In the hands of such an artist, all my weaknesses are openings for strength the proverbial cracks that let the light in. Even my sins and struggles hold the possibility for compassion and sympathy. Only such a God could make even my vices the soil in which he could grow virtue. Sometimes only a history of pride and arrogance can yield a profound humility that shows the world something about God. Sometimes being left gives rise to the fiercest commitment to stay. 
Maybe you grew up in a family where everyone broke their promises, and yet, by the grace of God, that has turned into a tenacious resolve to keep your vows. Maybe it's your painful experience of exclusion that makes you such a passionate advocate for inclusion. Shame wants us to regret our throneness. Grace wants us to see it as throne possibility. Nostalgia wants us to undo time, walk it all back as if this were some sort of recovery. Grace wants to unleash our history for a future with God that could only be ours, living into the version of ourselves that the world needs. Such nostalgia parades itself as recovery, but it is in fact a recipe for loss. What does he mean there? What what is being lost? Like if you could go back in time and if you could write a different kind of story, like if you could rewrite all the wrongs and you'd be a different person today, what's he saying is gonna be lost? That profound humility you have today, that fierce commitment that you have that you otherwise would not have to stay, that tenacious resolve that you will fulfill your vows, that passion to include others, So he continues, and I'll I'll end the quote here. New creation is a resurrection, not a reset. We know because of the scars. Just as a resurrected Christ bears the mark of his wounds, his history with the Roman Empire, so the new self in Christ is the resurrection of a self with a past. When God redeems us, we've got scars. And sometimes we don't want to look at that. We don't want to investigate those wounds. We don't want to see what God might be doing there because we think of it only in terms of reset or regret. But if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to ask to take a look at your life and embrace some of those things, you might see the wonder that a new wonder that God might be working. When I think about my faith journey, I would never want to live it again. Like, you know, you meet people sometimes who say, if I could go back all over, I'd do it all over again if I had to. Well, not me. I'm sorry. Like, I wouldn't want to, even our church planting journey, I wouldn't want to do that again. I'm grateful for it, but I wouldn't wouldn't want to go through that again. Like, when you think about the things that you and I have done in our lives, the ways that we have hurt people, like, scarred them and wounded them, cut them, or the ways that people have done that to us, like, who'd want to relive all of that again? We've been hurt too many times. We've hurt too many people. I don't think that's the point. The point isn't to cherish your past or to relive the past, but to remember it and be in wonder for how he can redeem such a story that on the heap of that rubble, he would bless you, choose you, adopt you, forgive you, lavish grace on you, make known his will and determination to save you, include you with Christ, seal you with the Holy Spirit so that you would be to the praise of his glory and he decided to do it before you were ever born or before he decided to create the world when he chose to love you and how he chose to redeem you. I know some of you may be skeptical and say, Jason, like, I'd, I don't know. Can he really do that? Because the brokenness is not just a distant memory. Maybe you're living in it right now. Can he really take what I am going through right now, which makes no sense to me, and redeem even that? How do you know? Dear friend, he's done it. Think about what he's done. He's chosen our most hateful act against him, the height of our brokenness in crucifying the Son of God and use that very act to bring about our redemption. The height of our rebellion, the ultimate act of our hatred towards God in crucifying the Son of God is simultaneously what he used to demonstrate the depth of his love for us. 
This is not wishful thinking that he can redeem our story. This is the heart of our faith. This is the center of the story of redemption, of what he can do. And if he did that with the death of Jesus, bringing about our redemption, what can he do with all the other details of our brokenness? What wouldn't he work in our lives now? What wonder isn't available to us now? Should we trust our stories, entrust our stories to him? Because whether in this life or the next, you've been created for the praise of his glory. God made you for redemption. And he doesn't just hide the brokenness, which is what we'd like to do. No. He doesn't hide the cracks. He overlays it with his grace. And somehow we look back and we realize he's made us more beautiful than before we were broken. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I I confess that in being up here, it feels like I could just be dropped in hardly knowing anyone's names or anyone's stories, Lord. And even among this community here, Lord, we acknowledge that there may be people here who have never shared their story or never shared their past or what they're carrying right now. Father, you know. Lord, you're the only one, Lord. Lord, who looks at our stories and you're not ashamed of us, oh God. The things that we want to hide, Lord, you want to highlight your grace in the midst of that. Give us the trust that we need today to believe that you can actually do it, God. That you could take this mess that we've created and the wounds that have been inflicted upon us, and somehow, by your grace, by a working of your power, you'd bring beauty out of it. We thank you that your word says it's true and that you've already shown us that you can do that in Christ. We pray that you would do it again. Grant me and my brothers and sisters here the faith to believe that you're at work in ways that we cannot see. And we thank you in advance, O Father. In Christ's name.